Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Say hello to episode 276, with Graham McMillan and myself in full-on gab mode, talking about the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the amazing Powers of Ten, number one by Jonathan Hickman and R.B. Silva, the upcoming HBO series from Joss Whedon, The Nevers, TV in the 90s, Batman Last Night on Earth Issue 2, The Green Lantern Annual by Grant Morrison and Giuseppe Kemencoli, Skullface Hantasan, and much, much more in this two-and-a-quarter-hour episode. Comments are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy it. And thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan. Hello. That sounds like a new microphone, Jeff. It is. It is a new microphone, although it's the same same as the previous microphone, Graham. And interestingly enough, from what I can determine, um, the problem that we have had in the past where uh, my microphone volume goes too high, and you say as much on the uh, episodes that you edit, and I've noticed in my episodes, I was like, well, I've got to look into this and make sure that I um, can adjust this. And uh, it doesn't really seem that adjustable. It's, <laughs> it, it, as I begin speaking, it slowly begins creeping up. And I'm like, okay, so this must be a problem with the microphone. But it looks like it might be a problem with my MacBook Pro, which apparently does not have um, awesome integration for their microphones. They apparently are like, oh, absolutely, you can use any of the three microphones we have built into the MacBook Pro. You can, there's even a headset port, but their audio jack. So when I use an integrated headset like this, it sort of works, but there's no controls that actually work, as far as I can tell, at least so I've been able to find out in the last 10 minutes of freaking out. So we might be cursed with the, oh, great, Jeff sounds like he's yelling problem that you and I, as the podcast editors, have to deal with. Um, to be fair, you're yelling. <laughs> Graham, this is the Kaiser Soze-like twist. I've been whispering this whole time. So, Jeff. You said Kaiser Soze, and you just reminded me. Do you watch a show, or have you seen a show called Dairy Girls on Netflix? Uh, or okay, on Channel 4, but we're in America, so therefore Netflix. Uh, I have not watched it, no. It's sort of half rings a bell. Uh, it is a show set in the 1990s about uh, these friends in London, Derry, and Ireland. And it, I think it's very funny. I think it's a really charming show. But there is an episode in the new season that's just gone on Netflix where the parents go to see The Usual Suspects. Uh-huh. But there's an emergency and they have to leave the theater before it ends. And they spend like two days going, who is Kaiser Soze? Oh, that's... I just like, run through all the different characters. And they're like, no, it's not. It's, at one point they go, it's Pete Postlethwaite. Another one goes, it's never Pete Postlethwaite. That's hilarious. That's uh, well, my goodness, what what a what a timely pop culture reference that turned out to be, Graham. Exactly, you were entirely on point, Jeff. I was. I was. Congratulations. Why? Well, I, I have another pop culture question to ask you. Sure. Have you, you lucky bastard, seen Hobbs and Shaw yet? 
Because I know we were talking about it offline. No, did you see it already? No, I haven't, I haven't seen it either, and I was really worried that you had seen it. <sighs> and I wouldn't know if you'd be like, <gasps> Yes, no. Uh, listeners, you may be very happy to know that, um, or not, maybe you don't care. But uh, Edie and I have begun the process of um, starting to perhaps look for uh, a place to live. Since the place that we are currently living has been a rent-controlled apartment that has served us very well, uh, we just did the first, the, our first ever tour of two or three <gasps> different houses in the neighborhood really? that we want to live in. Yeah. Oh my god, that's so exciting! Yeah. This is completely not what the people who are listening to this podcast want to hear. But Jeff, after we're finished recording, you're going to tell me all about it. Sure, I'm absolutely. really excited for you. Oh, thank you, thank you. I I would be too, in some ways, if it wasn't for the fact that there, uh, where we really want to live, there are about six properties available currently, and we saw half of them today, and they were all crazy. I mean, unsurprisingly, as people crazy insofar as expensive. Oh, sure, absolutely. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. That goes without saying. No, Graham. I mean paying crazy prices for a place that a crazy person assembled and then put on the market. Like we walked through this place where we're like, why, why, why does the level of each room keep changing? Why is this boxy clacking noise happening when we're walking across? What is this flooring? And I don't understand why this person actually thought that they should like spend a bunch of money clearly staging their property and then absolutely no money cleaning it after it's staged such that my wife walks into a bunch of cobwebs when moving from room to room. It was, it was. But the cobwebs were part of the staging. I know, I know. That's... It, it was rustic. <laughs> it's true. It's true. People were like, ah, those were bespoke cobwebs for god's sake exactly artisanal cobwebs yep made by only the best spiders who were actually uh busted so no you know less of a carbon footprint from you know germany oh i see i see well thank you uh, but bus obviously at a boat thank so, you, you know, yeah I was some people might be wondering what happened to the bus when it like reached the end of europe <laughs> um boat because i said there's no plane Boat is yeah, is where it's, it's going important. with that. Yeah. I, by the time you honestly, by the time you get to like bus and then boat, I'm not sure where the carbon footprint actually lies. Yeah, because yeah. then have to get to the states. Yeah. and then drive across all of America to yeah. get there from Germany. I might have made a terrible miscalculation. <laughs> I have to say, um, it's a good thing. I say, well, I say, in... I, not me, obviously. Obviously, um, the, yeah. the the person who staged the the apartment. In or the house, I should say, in location not being discussed. Indeed, I have to say, I really wish that I was on the ball enough to um, go and register Graham McMillan's House of Webs dot com as like a website, <laughs> and then make it seem like it's been closed due to poor management. Ah, uh, that would be great. That would be. I just threw the whole thing. Isn't like you know, we will bust them in. <laughs> It could be like a you know a backdated blog where it'll be like, turns out busting spiders in is not <laughs> we, we we tried really hard, but it turns out that that's not a good business model. Uh, when American spider, like when, the, when Donald Trump became president, he really pushed for American spiders. That's right, and it, it 
it really became all the German spiders that ended up being kicked out of the country relatively early on. That's one problem. Then there's the whole bussing, boating, carbon footprint problem. Is it honestly, Graham? It, it, look, I'm just willing to say this. I didn't think ahead. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think ahead, and I don't think anyone needs to draw any more attention to this. Uh, it, it was not my greatest business idea, but it's fine. Oh, you know, sometimes, sometimes you've just got it. Yeah, you've, you've got it. You've got a dream. You've got a dream. You've got no. to follow that dream. Dream what? the impossible dream, and I did. <laughs> and it turns out that dream, Jeff, was impossible. It was literally impossible. It's in, it's just like even the profit margins in Normally a healthy artisanal. The they don't actually need a dream that's actually impossible. But me, I thought <laughs> yes. I could do it. And you know what? I think I did. I think I, I've really, you know, I, I think I've discovered something new about myself. Yeah. About spiders. Yeah. About cost margins. Yes. You know, it, I you know I, I think it's been a learning experience for everyone, especially the spiders who had to learn English. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Think about it. Those poor bilingual spiders now having to try and figure out, God, it's we're just uh, all us English-speaking bastards. Maybe they'll have better luck in Australia, you know, if they can get in Is there. that where they're going? I, I hope so. I mean, I was thinking, like, you'd think they were, if they got bussed back to Germany after boat or boat in there I, somewhere. That, that, I mean, that's what I was thinking. I you, was thinking yeah. they'd just, they just head back to the homeland. Well, but, but may, then, maybe yeah, I'm wrong. skills, like, I mean, the UK wouldn't be, maybe Switzerland, maybe there's kind of a place in Everyone Switzerland. Everyone loves Switzerland. Of right? course, yeah, yeah. Everyone loves Switzerland. So yeah, the, the, let's just say they're in Switzerland. And anyone who buys Swiss chocolate now, just watch out. Maybe there's a spider inside there. <laughs> It's a shame that I'm not going to be able to then go and uh, purchase the website domain for Graham McMillan's House of Swiss Chocolate.com and just also have that Spider similarly closed Spider Chocolate. <laughs> Swiss Chocolate, with a, it's a Kinder Surprise. <laughs> kinder Spider Eggs. Yes, the only thing better than Kinder Eggs. Oh, dear Lord. Uh, Graham, you should be heading up the the comic book industry. It's clear that the American should, comic book industry. Me, me mm-hmm. and Bill Jameis. And, uh, you know, who else? Who else could get this thing back in his feet? Jim Shooter. Well, me, Bill Jameis, and Jim Shooter. We oh, could get this thing back in his feet. Please. I mean, uh, this is a thing that I heard only secondhand and, and super recently. But uh, my understanding is you now own the rights to Youngblood. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't like. I genuinely don't understand that story. It's nuts to me. Yeah. Like, so for people who have no idea what we're talking about, God Rob Liefeld said on on uh, Facebook a couple of days ago, as we record, yeah, um, that he's not going to do any more Youngblood comics, and his explanation for why was surprisingly more in depth than I abandon Youngblood as a property every three years or so, and it's just that time again. Mm-hmm. Um. It, he's basically lost the rights to Youngblood, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. He he s- seemed to go into some sort of profit-sharing arrangement, investment no arrangement. No With With uh, Scott Rosenberg. Yes. Of, of Malibu and, and then Platinum Studios um, in order to launch Awesome Comics. Right. 
Uh, and there was someone else involved oh, in this as well. Oh, and it is the it's dude. A, no, yeah. no, no, no. But it was a, it was a, even before the other person that oh, you're thinking of. Oh, even before the there other was, person? It was, oh. it was a three-way. Was it Jeff Lowe? Prof- it, no, it was someone else. I can't remember who the other person is. But, um, yeah, it, it's – Scott Rosenberg then essentially sold the, the rights yeah. uh, in order to raise money for something else. And and the the – What's the man's name? The new one? Uh, I don't. I, honestly, it sounds a bit like a wrestler. It's like El Ray or like the Ray and or Ray? and it's and, Andrew something, isn't it? I it's it's I don't know. Hold on, oh, blah blah. I can get there within three clicks of a lamb's tail. Uh, Andrew. Oh, Andrew Rev. Rev. I don't know why I was thinking Ray. Rev. Oh, who? Uh, yeah. One, one letter away is why indeed he was the <laughs> owner of 80s indie comics publisher komiko oh no he was well, he, no, he, he was. bought it he yeah bought, he, he bought it yeah afterwards that's right. after they, they went they went bust yes um because that seems to be the way that he does things yes and so, he managed to keep you know, a lot of komiko's titles out of print for a good long one would say far too long time as i recall so yes um, Good job, Rob Liefeld, yeah. for losing your no, no. Own but so, so basically, he he had a he had a conversation he had a conversation with with this Andrew Rev person, yes, who apparently was like, if you want, you can audition to do Youngblood, <laughs> and maybe I'll make you as big as Todd McFarlane, <laughs> which is insane. Like on so many levels, that's absolutely insane to me. Uh... I, and I don't mean that, I don't mean that in the sense of like you know, oh, Rob Liefeld's clearly as big. I mean it in the sense of like. Top McFarlane is still being used as like the model of a successful comic creator. No, I, 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 I think that that is a level of shade at 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 so many on so many levels. It is, I mean, oh my god. I mean, really, honestly, if that's one of the things that if your if your whole goal is to to stick it to Rob Liefeld, I think fitting Todd McFarlane into your little you know dismissive. Uh, ad lib, side eyed ad lib. You got to get them in there somehow. But yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was kind of amazing. So anyway, so long story short, yes, Rob has walked away, yeah, from uh, Youngblood. But I, I think it was a bleeding cool. I saw this. Someone else basically was like, "Oh yeah, that's also why we've not seen any Supreme comics because Rob doesn't have the rights to Supreme either." Oh, which makes sense. Which makes sense actually for me. Because because he he did list what he has the rights to, and <laughs> you know with the best will in the world, it's all the sea level Rob Liefeld properties. I I honestly think that Rob Liefeld sold off all of his other stuff to everyone else, and then you know dug deep uh, to come up with a bunch of of things for quote unquote himself. But yeah, well, it's you may or may not remember that Rob sold the. Uh, adaptation rights, the movie rights and the TV rights to Netflix a while ago. I thought he was going to, and then he he backed down. On well, the he, deal. he did. No, he backed down after it went through. He backed down after it happened. Oh, I see. He pulled it after it happened. But also, that was the second deal. He had he had a deal with someone else, and the first deal was announced, and THR did a story, and it was given to us. It was like the press release was Rob Liefeld's comic book characters are are now being going to be adapted by. Whoever, I maybe Sony. I genuinely can't remember who it was. Mm. And I'm running story up, and I'm like, uh, Young Bloods and Supreme. 
and profits. <laughs> and we get a, 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 a email from from like Rob's agent. And it's basically like, no, 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 no. They're, they're not part of the deal. Wow. And I was like, who is? Like, not meaning to be funny. Who, like, who, right. who right. is? And they're like, well, it's Blood Wolf and Rejects and Kaboom. Yep. And I was like, oh, boy. Yeah. And, like, my editor, editor at the time was like, you know, so, so you know, what are they like? And I'm like, they've appeared, like, twice. Mm-hmm. Like, it's actually genuinely difficult to say what they're like because they really have barely appeared. Right. Like, they appeared during, like, the, the awesome comics era, and that was it. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's just... Yeah, and that's what Rob's left with. That's what Rob Rob owns. Yeah, Bloodstrike, Brigade, Berserkers, Bloodwolf, Rejects, Kaboom, Evangeline, and others in my portfolio. Oof. I gotta tell you, like, if Kaboom I mean, it, gets it, listed it's before... Rob, right? yeah, or mm-hmm. Rejects. Yeah. You yeah. know? Like, hands up anyone who's read a Rejects comic. <laughs> My hand has not risen, I will admit. You know what? No one's who is listening to this podcast's hand has risen. Now, no I, one. Is Bloodstrike the the sort of insane faux Deadpool comic that, that it's Bloodstrike put out not, a couple and, of years? And I, again, Bloodstrike? I might be wrong, but is Bloodstrike not one of the terrible image comics who had weaponized AIDS? You mean you've got uh, no, a, meaning, you mean assistants meaning, that are that have weapons like like admin no no assistants? no I mean he, he has the HIV virus but it is quote unquote weaponized. I'm not making this up. There's an early image character who has like and I quote weaponized AIDS. Okay, the great thing at Graham is I got to tell you. I've never thought about ending our friendship at all until now, and it's not fair because you are just repeating something that you apparently exists out in the comic book world. But I'm just so it's, deeply offended. It, I'm like, how it, dare no, you? It's horrible. It's genuinely horrible, right? But don't forget, that was the second image character. Right. Who – because cause you remember Shadowhawk maybe? Uh, was it? I thought it was Chapel or whatever. Chapel might be the Chapel might be the the one I'm thinking of the the life elf one I'm thinking about. But oh. I'm fairly sure the original Shadowhawk died of AIDS. Oh, that could be. That yeah, that could be. Because like it was the 90s and they were trying to be I don't know socially relevant and or edgy and or just astonishingly offensive. <laughs> Maybe all of them. Maybe I, all I was of about them. to say that really does sum up the original image group, doesn't it? And that's Ah, dear. Anyway, so yes. Yeah, so ladies and gentlemen, please contact Graham McMillan because he, he has the rights to young blood. Or Andrew. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, am, I, I am now representing Andrew Rev, who, let's face it, sounds like a person who isn't real. Yes, that's it. That's what I'm thinking. We, talk, we started talking about Kaiser Sose. You're Andrew Rev. That's why everyone's having a difficult time reaching out and finding you, you know. I own Kamiko. <laughs> Like my love of obscure publishers from the 1980s. Yeah. Like I may be one of the five people in the world who would be like, I, I could own Kamiko. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we should have done that for our 10 year anniversary. What? By Kamiko? By Kamiko for ourselves. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been awesome? They're like, it's just the name. We're like, it's fine. That's okay. We're, we weren't going to do anything with it, but that did, would be Did just I ever great. tell you? Hmm? Did I ever tell you I once approached – in all seriousness, I once approached Fantagraphics unofficially about um, 
licensing Amazing Heroes? You know, you did not tell me that, but I know that you ruminated for a while on Twitter a year or two ago where you're like, Amazing Heroes. Oh, it was, heroes, it was more, than, more heroes. than a year or two ago. It was, oh, okay. it was a pilot. Because uh-huh. um, I want to say it was before the Comics Journal was relaunched. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, long story short, Funscraft apparently doesn't own the, the Amazing Heroes. <laughs> <laughs> this whole topsy-turvy, black-is-white world, this is also what I find out, is Fanagraphics does... Who owns Amazing Heroes? I can't... I genuinely can't remember now. But, but you know, there was there was lots of me being like, eh, you know, maybe, like, you know, would you be willing to revive it? Like, would you be willing for someone to, yeah. to do something with the name? Right. And they were like, you know, that's a really good idea, but I gotta tell you, we don't own it. Wow. Like, someone, someone else owns Amazing Heroes now. And I was like, okay. by then how the i mean i gotta tell you i i understand me being behind on the original art thing but the fact that i'm behind on the like oh that title just went out of business i should see if i can buy it you know or license it here has been out of business forever like no i know for like 25 years i know i know that's where i'm like honestly graham like just put out a craigslist personal ad you can probably get the rights within you know 48 hours 72 <laughs> hours i would think yeah it was really weird it was really weird and this is all like you know amazingly like offhand back channel with people who worked fantagraphics so for all i know they're wrong and fantagraphics does own amazing heroes but that's definitely what i was told at the time that would be great it was just everyone well, was if, like, like if they were just like if someone was just wrong they're like we don't own amazing heroes <laughs> then they in fact they all just turn and check they're like oh we do we do. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was going to be like, oh, I should totally email him, and then forgot by like three thirty, and then that was it. Exactly, something happened. Like yeah. you know, Gary Gross had had a like had too many coffees and was shouting, and they were like, "I'll do it later." And then one thing led to another. Yeah, exactly as it does in the comic book industry. Um, yeah. So Graham McMillan, I have to say, this is our most obliquely on-topic podcast in quite some time. Like people are I, like. To be fair, it almost seemed like it wasn't because we did start off by talking about um, you buying house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and but we pulled it back. We really did in in unexpected ways. In very, even, very even though we ways. like, I genuinely was hoping that even though neither of us have seen it, I did want to say about Hobson Shaw that I, I told you an email yesterday. Drew Pierce wrote it. Yes, right. So Drew Pierce wrote Iron Man three. Right, uh, which I think is probably what he's most famous for um, here in America. Um, he also wrote the story for Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, but he didn't write the script. Oh, interesting. Huh. Uh, but he then apparently made—oh God, I can't remember the name of the film. He made a film a couple of years ago that he directed as well. But I know him in the, you know, figurative, but sense. also, but also literal sense. Oh, I see. Because he wrote a sitcom called No Heroics in the UK. Right. Like 10 years ago, maybe longer, mm-hmm. that was a superhero bar. Yes. Um, that I loved. I loved that show. I genuinely loved that show. And I talked to him for IO9. Mm-hmm. When I was working at IO9 about it. Um, I'm saying all of this because, A, his involvement means that it's totally where the black Superman line comes from and that in Hobbs and Shaw. Like, 100%. When I found out he was involved, I was like, of course he fucking is. That's such a Drew Pierce line. Right. Thing number two, 
I only found out who's writing it because someone else at THR was interviewing him, and apparently in the interview they were like, oh, say hello to Graham. As if everyone in THR, you know, shares the same house. Right. But also, why does this guy remember me 10 years later? Well, if he's a comic book dude, like, maybe he follows your work, man. It makes sense. It's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's that is some that is some craziness. Oh, I'm getting a poor connection message. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Well, we'll just we'll bluff our you, way. You faded out for a bit. You faded out for a bit, but you came back. I don't know what the weather is like in San Francisco, but here in Portland, we are again just having one of those ridiculously warm days. Mm-hmm. And you may or may not remember, but it's always the summer and it's always the warm days that we have the shittest connection. Mm. You know, it's so funny. I'm like, I don't remember that because it always feels like it's the rainy days and it's the wet days and it's you know the days ending in y as the joke goes i honestly i felt like you were doing the chumbawamba song for a second <laughs> is is there uh good times the days that remind you of the bad time and then you just like get knocked down and get back up again well there we go then that pretty much sums me up i did not see hobbs and child though i wanted to uh but i did see once upon a time in hollywood last week and uh as a i, I want to know all the fuck about it jeff i'm sure you do i'm sure you do because god knows it's not like it's something the internet hasn't been talking about for eight and a half days i, I you know what i wish the internet was talking about it i wish that Maybe someone related to Bruce Lee could have feelings about the cameo that reduces him to a joke. I wish that people could be talking on the internet about the end of the film so that, like, why do I need to go and see the fucking film when I can have it swelled for me before it comes out? Because people are just have to discuss that twist. Yeah. I wish the people on the internet were talking about this film more. Chat. I know. Well, I don't know what you think. Maybe in another world, Graham. Maybe, maybe in a, a better world. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a pretty charming quentin tarantino movie it is weirdly more problematic than some of his other films because that's saying something my well friend. no i mean so this this is the weird thing i i think maybe maybe i am a complete sucker because i think there's there's a couple of schools of thought when it comes to mr tarantino but i think that is a sort of rule of thumb that as a white indie filmmaker he is somebody who has crafted a a, a relatively small handful of movies the majority of which uh have people of color and women at the center of the narratives and or are explicitly violently opposed in the last couple of movies to um uh, methods of oppression and exploitation against those people. You know, it's not a surprise that as America has to deal with a, a white supremacist and a Nazi problem, a lot of people found no dearth of inglorious bastard gifts to start slapping all over the internet. And similarly, Django Unchained is a um, very, very harsh um story about southern slavery that by that is not uh what david brothers would call misery porn it actually is a story that puts you know a black hero doing awesome things up against the center of that so 
So, uh, but but surely the fact that he is like a white, you know, cis male director telling these stories, like, do you not then get into the uh, the question of whether or not he's hijacking other people's stories and 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 it is maybe not turning into the misery porn, but it's turning them into some sort of like um, sensationalist. Uh, you know, retelling of 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 the of someone else's story. Well, I I don't know. I mean, I think that that is as things go. A I'm not. I'm not trying to trap you. Into no, 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 like, no, no, you know, no, 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 no. Trap, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, like I'm just asking. No, I think what's problematic about that it, it, that question, although it makes sense, is uh, I feel that on the one hand may seem like a relatively recent line of thinking slash questioning. Uh, also, again, there is a thing where people, it, as um, the thing about progress it is that it kind of, you do have to keep moving the goalposts before people were able to really sort of establish the beachhead, you know, you had Tarantino again being one of the few guys that was actually writing those roles and 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 writing the hell out of them and delivering you know quote unquote star making performances like it's yeah. very hard to look at something like uh, Jackie Brown which it, you know was a shame was a comparative uh, you know commercial failure and had a certain amount of um, commercial criticism as well. For being, although it presented itself as, a, you know, sort of a straight up black exploitation re, re, um, redux in the 90s, was actually incredibly different and was built as a star vehicle for Pam Greer. So it's, for me, it's it's a little. The two parts to. to I, it's it's just hard. I mean, honestly, this is a guy, and maybe, maybe it was a Weinstein Company um, film promotion prank gone awry but like quentin tarantino marched in black lives matter protests during around the time of before the hateful eight came out and in fact the new york police department uh openly threatened to ha have the the policeman's union boycott his movie like just for appearing and speaking at the march you know so I don't know that that's kind of wonderful. Yeah. So, so, so I want to cut this guy like the benefit of the doubt that being yeah, exactly. said, you want, you want to give him all the slack. Yeah. But there, there is another school of thought, which is that uh, among other things, this is that Tarantino um, crafts narratives in which white people get to, you know, freely say the very loaded word, uh, to black people, that black people and women get are the heroes, but undergo significant amounts of grueling punishment in all of their movies. And uh, Tarantino's relationship to violence and his tendency to talk about uh, the S&M relationship that a filmmaker has with the audience uh, leads to some problems of people saying like, yeah, this guy actually does not like what does not like women does not like people of color, but he sure gets off on torturing them. And again, I really don't think that that 
is the case, but I do want to throw it out there mentioned as a thing that's there. So, so all of this leads into once upon a time in Hollywood, which is a very uh, enjoyable film. As long as you are able to look past the fact that all of the characters are blonde, that Margot Robbie who plays Sharon Tate has a, almost no lines and her performance in the movie is uh is 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 straight is effervescent to the point of almost literal inanity like she in any situation is sort of a giggly happy dancy life force um to the point where you really wonder about the interior life to say nothing of, you know, this is, this is Sharon Tate as she moves to, to Los Angeles and arrives there. Um, you know, so she is still, she is married to Roman Polanski. Um, Polanski, we only see it at a distance. And so the, the movie, which very much positions her in the movie posters and the marketing as the, as a central character is weirdly a central presence. The majority of the movie is Tarantino figuring out an in into some of the things that he is most fascinated in with, which is to say uh, movie stars, particularly of the B and C level variety, who are in Hollywood precisely at a time of a tremendous change that is happening uh, in the movie industry, right as the tremendous changes also happening to them. Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton, who is a guy who had his own Western show up in, if I understand things correctly from the timeline, maybe the late 50s, early 60s, goes on to... Um, more or less sabotages career by leaving TV for um, the movies, which then don't pan out. So in order to keep making bank, he has been reduced to guest appearances on various TV shows where he is in the course of uh, playing the baddie as uh, Al Pacino, who plays a movie producer explains to him over drinks at Musso and Frank's, uh, DiCaprio, who was a former good guy, is now the bad guy. And part of why he's there is he shows up and the new good guy who beats him is then shown to be the new good guy. Like he's, you know, yeah. Pacino's yeah. like subconsciously, everyone still sees you as, uh, I forget the name of the damn character, which is a shame. Uh, and, you know, so they see the new guy beat the crap out of you and they just keep doing that and making you a punching bag week after week after week. And then eventually your use is over because then nobody really sees you as anything but a, a punching bag. And uh, Pacino mentions this because he's like, hey, I love the Westerns. We loved your Western, you know, Bounty Hunter or whatever it was bounty train we want to get you he's like i want you to get you over to italy and have you start making spaghetti westerns like sergio carbucci is the second greatest director of spaghetti westerns in the world and he wants you for you know i don't remember if it's the ringo kid or you know but he's like get get over there 
Rick Dalton is incredibly afraid of that. His he is at the point where he his 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 best friend, of course, as you know from the promotional stuff, is his uh, stunt stunt double Cliff Booth, who um is Cliff is been reduced to essentially being Rick's gopher for extra cash and driving him around in part because Rick lost his license and, you know, in a, in one too many DUIs. And so it's guys hanging on at the edge of Hollywood, just as it's about to change and being there on the fringe. Which honestly sounds very much like your thing. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's a, it is, it's a incredible, Incredibly enjoyable movie. The only thing that made me wring my hands a lot is, like I said, it's incredibly. It's not. It's not even just regressive. There's something that kind of the Bruce Lee scene is so offensive in its way that you are like, what? Like, what is the point of it? As as people have mentioned, like it's very clearly that there's a scene where Brad Pitt. Basically, part of the reason why he can't get stunt work anymore is um, he popped. He worked as uh, Rick's stunt double on the Green Hornet, and at one point we see what is either what some have argued is a fantasy sequence, and other people have said is seems to be a, a flashback to uh, Brad Pitt on the set of sorry Cliff Booth on the set of the Green Hornet who uh, gets tired of listening to Bruce Lee like run his mouth and, and and be incredibly boastful about how he could beat Cassius Clay in a, in a, you know, in a open combat. And so they end up sparring with one another and end up, you know, Brad actually ends up, it's, it's, it's a very Marvel superhero fight in the sense of it's two out of three falls each of them kicks the other's ass and then right before they get to the third part, someone breaks in and fires uh, Brad Pitt for basically fighting with Bruce Lee. Although on top of things, uh, Cliff Booth slash Brad Pitt has a bad rep in the industry because uh, people believe that he killed his wife and got away with it. And we never find out the truth of that. We see a flashback to um, Pitt and his wife on this boat. Uh, but it's really interesting the amount of detail to which um, Tarantino kind of loads the scene. Of course, the wife is drunk and um, trying to pick a fight with Brad Pitt, who's sitting there in like miserably putting on scuba gear while drinking a beer um, and also having – I, would, I think a spear gun, which I don't think was loaded, like more or less pointing right at her. And then the scene, you know, cuts away. So you never really necessarily know what happens. But yeah, Cliff Booth more or less gets fired by, amusingly enough, uh, Zoe Bell, who plays the the wife of Kurt Russell. And they are the stunt coordinator team for the Green Hornet. She fires him for, you know, denting her car by throwing Bruce Lee into it. And more importantly, killing her killing his wife, you know? So, uh, so this is the thing that the movie is, it's a little hard for it to not seem like a incredibly veiled, angry letter about the state of Hollywood. Um, because a 
apart from Sharon Tate, every opinion that comes out of a woman's mouth with is potentially dangerous. It says a lot about this movie that Charlie Manson is in it. it says maybe five words and you hear a lot more, including a really great performance um, by the woman playing Squeaky Fromm, who might be Dakota Fanning, Dakota Johnson, Dakota somebody or other, I, Dakota North. I don't know. Um, <laughs> like the all, all of the things that the women respond to, uh, uh, they do it in a way that feels like emotionally harsh overreaction, with the, with the exception of Sharon Tate, who is, again, this sort of blonde, bubbly life force you know, gurgling in the background or occasionally in the foreground. Um, you've got one scene with uh, Bruce Lee where Bruce Lee comes off as just a total dick. Uh, and then that's kind of it. And there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time being like, well, yeah, you know, how much is Tarantino trying to like – tell a movie about the golden age and acknowledging and underlining the way in which um, he's aware that the golden age is regressive and problematic. And he himself is an old person and is regressive and problematic. And how, like kind of how much of it is somebody who um, like a lot of other dudes in Hollywood or the entertainment industry have reacted quite churlishly, I guess is a way of understating it to the me too movement and people, uh, women and people of color demanding acknowledgement that they have been, um, underused and that they, they too demand a seat at the table. Like it's, tough like Taryn there's there is there is so much that's really just beautifully impeccably put together uh about once upon a time and honestly between the cameo experience between uh of uh, the cameo of my beloved El Coyote the Mexican restaurant and the latest Hame video directed by Paul Thomas Anderson that that co-stars the new Beverly like my brief time in Los Angeles uh was just I had a real strange pang of homesickness for this place that was arguably never my home. You know, I was going to say the homesickness for something that is a fantasy, right? Mm. Longing, longing for a particular era of your life as opposed to home. Right, right, and I think that's it. Well, I mean, it is that. Like, I was in Los Angeles for three years, and at the time, you don't know that it's not going to be the place that you're going to stay. Like, you're living there. Oh, sure, where you're yeah, living you, there, yeah, but you, yeah, yes, you you uh, go to Los Angeles. I think New York's the same. Mm -hmm. You go to New York to live in New York. Like, no one yeah. really goes to New York and is like doing this for a couple of months. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so, so I think it's the same. It's you know, hearing you talk about uh, once upon a time. Mm -hmm. I, first of all, you know, it can be both things. Mm -hmm. It can be Tarantino's love letter and also Tarantino's regressive fuck you. Yeah, you know, he is he is he contains multitudes. Sure. It, it's also unsurprising. Both of those things are unsurprising. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Like the, those threads have been in his work all along, mm -hmm. and and it is life all along mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the, the heat responds particularly negatively to criticism, um, not only of himself, but also of people like him, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it sounds like, it's, to hear you describe it, it sounds very much like one of those things that, for a particular audience, it would be manna from heaven. But even that particular audience has to basically sort of grimace at points. Yeah. Yeah, I think Go, so. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, we'll light this one slide. Well, I, it does. I wonder if it's a certain level of sensitivity because on the one hand, the audience that I was with loved it. Edie really liked it. And she is pretty squirmy about Tarantino movies overall. It helps that apart from Jackie Brown, it is arguably his gentlest movie and it's a good quote-unquote hangout film like it and so it really is enjoyable but what's fascinating to me there's a the under what the undercurrent is um is it is elusive and and at some level it's completely disquieting you know um because, because, sort of in the same way that for me that that Forrest Gump, uh, well, uh, despite being presenting as a satire, to me is always a, a celebration of baby boomer republicanism, and yeah, Forrest Gump is, is is an astonishingly conservative film. Yeah, the only lens through which we see the '60s counterculture is through. I mean, unless it's literally fashion statements, is through the Manson family. And so similarly, everything about what the 60s is bringing in is tarred with, you know, a, a generally, a, gen, a murderously, uh, 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 malicious stupidity. You know, yes. and so it, it it's that is it's a, it's a little tough. And then particularly along the way that things are uh, the the way that the ending works for me is a very frustrating because, I mean, as people know, I, some can't, of, I kind of really want to talk about the ending, but we can't because it's a spoiler. But like, yeah, I think it's only been I out for like such yeah. a short period of time. You know, well, the ending because it was spoiled, yeah. and I, I suspect that many other people do as well. But the ending almost seems one of the most interesting things about it. Oh yeah, I, which is probably why it means to keep, and it. And in case you're curious, it plays great. It is amazing how genuinely, um, in the moment with the theater in the house, like people were howling and. And it, 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 you know, it definitely worked. It worked really well, shockingly so. So, um, but it is also. I, I, I'm surprised about that because mm-hmm. hearing about it as opposed to seeing it, mm-hmm. it seemed like a, a bad idea. Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing that's weird is it feels like, uh, it feels, it, he carries it off really well. If it wasn't for the fact that there is, he's got at least one movie in his oeuvre that pulls a similar twist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that actually ends up, I think 
throwing things off significantly. I I, th- I think it does mm-hmm. because you know when I first heard of it, I was like, oh, so he's doing blah 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 again, right? Right. You know, and and honestly, I don't think there's any way for him to avoid that. Yeah. Given what he given what he does with the end of Once Upon a Time. Yeah. But it's also why go back to that well? Because honestly, that well does not feel like something you can repeat. Well, I, I that is a good point, and people have spent some time wondering about that. And and honestly, in a way, I think the wondering makes a makes a certain degree of sense. Like I said, it's precisely part of it that ends up being a weirdly that that ends up underscoring the weirdly regressive feeling to it. Whereas if they had done something else, the, I think the thing that is weird is the way everything moves right up to the point of that twist is a is something else. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's heading in a far different uh, place. Like, um, I do think I mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson earlier. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights has always struck me um, as just an amazing ending because at a certain point, it is literally after everything everyone else went through, he turns around and gives his characters a happy ending. You know set to the beach boys god only knows and it's it's so odd but you're so grateful for it and then of course you know it's laced with that little last sequence of of dirk diggler sweatily talking to his own penis or whatever but you know but right up to that point you're kind of in that oh there's a lovely i always think of it like philip k dick's divine invasion sort of where it's like oh yeah we here's a happy ending we gave you a happy ending i mean you know you're quite possibly trapped in a psychotic gnostic universe as a result but you got but you got your worked, happy ending yeah exactly it all worked out isn't that what you want and so i think there's a way in which i feel that this to make to make things weird, I feel that I feel that this moves closer to Boogie Nights than what might have been happening in other uh, Tarantino movies, where I can't really talk about them. But believe me, I you know am, you'll know it when you see it. You'll know it when you see it. And yeah, exactly. And and also, I I maybe at that point I can sort of talk about how I feel the 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 similar ending because it was um so thematically uh logical like you were kind of like okay right okay whereas this one's more of a uh uh which is i think a lot of people are like yes exactly that's supposed to be the thing like you know um one of my brothers is like, yeah, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a fake, you know, it's a fake Western about people making fake Westerns, you know, and trying to to live as if they're in a real Western. And I, there's a, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said for that. And there's a lot of ways in which the, that layer of things is very 
satisfying or could be very satisfying again in this weird way it's it's one thing when you have an unreliable narrator and it's another thing when you have an unreliable filmmaker and i think that's Mm -hmm. depending on how people feel about tarantino that means that if you don't have that problem it's a lot easier to walk out of there and be like oh yeah absolutely you know but for me i walked out of it being like okay so when when, yeah. So what exactly happened in this film? Well, I, I mean, but even in that weird way of like looking back, it was like, what if when Quentin Tarantino put Uma Thurman in Bruce Lee's tracksuit from Game of Death, he's not honoring Bruce Lee, but just flat out, you know, reappropriating it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like then it becomes this thing of, yeah, if he if he again takes an incredibly blonde woman and smacks her right dab in the middle of all of his, um, you know, favorite Asian film scenarios, at what point is that being like this is this amazing homage? And and one part is it this you know what this stuff would be great the only thing missing is you know a blonde woman a blonde woman yeah you know with with gnarly feet you know so and that is the other thing i will say for people who have no patience for quentin tarantino's foot fetish film uh foot fetish taste once upon a time in hollywood is i didn't see the hateful eight but unless the hateful eight had jennifer jason lee like taking off her boots and sticking her amazingly dirty feet like right up into the 70 millimeter camera um once upon i can't see how anything is ever going to beat once a time in hollywood for the number of women yes no it's three different women jam their feet like right up into the camera and they are at what at what point in all seriousness is this Quentin Tarantino's fetish, or Quentin Tarantino making fun of the fact that everyone expects him to do this? I have no idea. Like, has he crossed the line by doing it so often in this film? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he's really trying. But because there's sort of a weird... Maybe, I don't know. It's great the number of people who will probably write in and be like, actually, Jeff, because I'm like, no, I can. I remember two sequences. I know there was a third. And of course, that's the worst part. I'm like sitting here being like, who was the third woman to like jam her feet into the camera at <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I, I remember when, oh, what was it called? Death Proof, but whatever yes. his, his chapter of Death Proof was called. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, no, Grindhouse was the movie. Death Proof was his chapter. His chapter, exactly. Yeah. Um, that was when, for me at least, I started like hearing people talk about Quentin Tarrant's foot fetish. And I've got to be honest, I just didn't see it at all. <laughs> really? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I I don't like, what what am I missing? So part of me is like, am I going to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and just not see it? Yeah. I'd be like, Jeff, I didn't even notice the feet. <laughs> I would love if that was the case, Graham. I would really love it. But let me tell you. It's he. It's hard. You know the thing that's actually really weird is, <clears throat> as as an official old person who was once a very very young person, I one hundred percent all old people. What's that? No, no, just me. Anyway, okay. I very much remember my sister jamming her feet up on the dashboard barefoot during the summer in exactly that same way. And so when it first popped up in death proof, I was like, 
is it? Because, of course, unlike you, I'm guessing, I also saw From Death to Dawn where where they literally have Sama Hayek jam her foot into Quentin Tarantino's mouth and pour wine down her leg. Like, it's... I was like, well, there's Honestly, somebody... Yeah. like, I've seen that film, and I, I didn't remember that was in it at all, and that completely bypassed me. So clearly, like, I have a blindness for Quentin You Tarantino. do? Oh my god, you don't remember that? Do. That's amazing. Graham, there's almost nothing else worth remembering about that movie, for the most part. I would, I would be lying if I said I really remembered anything about... about uh, Holy shit! So, apart from yeah. uh, George Clooney's hair, and I almost called him George Clinton, by the way. Oh, that would have been amazing. That that really. Let's get that remake going. That would be the best. I want to remake all of George Clooney movies with George Clinton in it. That would be so good. Uh, okay, but we have to start with George Clinton in ER. Yeah, and all the rest of the cast return and reprise their roles, but George Clinton isn't. I don't know. I I am not sure even George Clinton could save ER, which Quentin Tarantino I, also directed an episode of. He did. I Quint, uh, ER showed up on Netflix at some point. Maybe it's still there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I loved ER when it was on. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it showed up on Netflix, and I was like, I'm gonna fucking rewatch the shit out of this show. And I was so excited until I saw it. Really. Wow. Yes. Because what I didn't realize was ER invented every single cliche on television. That's probably true. Yeah, that probably it's is true. It's shocking yeah. to watch it now. You're like, yep, this is literally like 46 minutes of tropes and tropes yeah. and tropes and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, it, was, it was almost unwatchable. Mm-hmm. That's... That's a shame. I, you know, I, I, it, I, there isn't a whole era of 90s TV that I just cannot go back to. Like, I have similarly super fond memories of the X Files. And the few times that I've even tried to watch a repeat episode, mind you, I haven't gone to the top five all greats, but ones from like, oh, I remember this is in a decent season. And I'm just like, Oh fuck no. No. Oh yeah, that's no. that's Buffy the Vampire Slayer for me. Yeah, I made it through Buffy like I've watched that series through twice. Um but I seem to remember when during your last rewatch you were just suffering. Uh a little bit, a little bit. Um uh, I mean honestly, I, yeah, I think as I recall we were talking about it and for me everything from season after season 4 on is just well, actually, I think I like season four and almost nobody did. But then seasons five, six, and seven. Is and... season four the college one? Yeah. And I like the college one and almost nobody did. Everyone was like, nope, after high school in the mayor, forget it. I'm like, oh, season four, it's fun, you know. And then, Dead. yeah. And then season five, oh, shit, we should talk about this. I swear to Christ, I saw some of the details for the shit bags what what's the others the the outcasts oh, the, 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 the new joss uh, whedon, whedon show. yeah on hbo of all places yeah i didn't see that but i did see lots of people talking about it yeah 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 yeah. i didn't actually see the actual thing well it it's great because everyone's like oh yeah you mean like you know it, it as the oh, rundown the of each character's the nevers thank you yeah so 
the description of all the characters, which God only knows may not have been written by Whedon at all, although some of it reads like it, but the description of the characters is, um, man. Oh, it's, it's terrible. I'm reading the official HBO like press release about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, it's immediately, it's terrible. You know, the Nevers is an epic science fiction drama about a gang of Victorian women known as The Touched, who find themselves with unusual abilities, relentless enemies, and a mission that could change the world. Oh, no. Honestly, as you go on and read it, like, I'm so – I want to start a petition on change.org that makes Joss Whedon change his name to Chris Claremont Jr., because the Claremontisms, <laughs> like, of course, it's unsurprising for all of us who are like, oh, yeah, sure, Buffy, yeah, you look at that, and sure, Willow, Dark Phoenix, and sure, yeah, then he goes in and does a, you know, Astonishing X-Men, and there's, you know, Kitty Pride doing her thing. And then you read the descriptions for the Nevers, and it's like, holy God, it's so... Ah, Laura Donnelly leads the series as Amalia True, the most reckless, impulsive, emotionally damaged hero of her time. Because it's Sweden, you can't have a woman without her being emotionally damaged. Nick Frost portrays Declan Oran, aka the Beggar King, the Shadow King, a low-level crime lord who's perfectly happy to help Amalia and her cause, and equally happy to sell them out. Oh my God! It it no. goes on. For Lavinia so Bidlow, wealthy spinster and champion of the touched, mm-hmm. who funds the Xavier School, um, the orphanage where Amelia and many yep. of them live. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, no. no, I mean right down to like I mean it's it's Claremontisms right down to it's practically like the the fucking Scottish Yard police guy who popped up in Blade and then over in Excalibur. Like, it's just, it's it's insane. He pretty much, one of the last characters is like, oh, of course there's got to be the fucking Hellfire Club in here too. Like, he's totally doing it. He's like, X-Men, Victorian, Cyber, Steampunk. It's like, you guys are going to be cosplaying the shit out of it. Like, it is, it is, um, it is, it's impressive to me how much it's Whedon playing to his base. And like I said, reading it and how much that base is Chris Claremont's X-Men. And again, Chris Claremont's X-Men. So it's a, it, that was a stunner for me to read. Um, so I'm glad you're getting a chance to look through it and hopefully agree with me as opposed to. Genuinely terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Genuinely terrible. Also, it reminds me, remember Whedon took over runaways after, uh, Brian Kivon? Yes, yes. And I, they went back to Victorian times and picked up a Victorian orphan. Right, right, yeah, right. That was the first thing I thought of. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember the early 2000s when like Marvel brought in Whedon and Neil Gaiman and were like, hey, do your thing, and they did. <laughs> okay, to be fair, again, I actually thought that uh, Astonishing X-Men was was worth the read, was enjoyable. Uh, then it was kind of like, is that all you got? And then it sort of turned out that B, it was yes. C, yes. right? You know? And then let's face it, Neil Gaiman between 1602 and The Eternals was it, – it's 
it's almost as if Joe Casada called him up and was like, Neil, Neil, we want you. You've got to, you're the, you're our guy. We want to pay you crazy amounts of money to show that, that the new Marvel is, you know, almost as good as the old Vertigo. And, to, and to prove it, we want, you, you know, nothing would say that more like you writing like two Marvel limited series that really allow you to play with all the tools and toys in the toy box. And, and Neil Gaiman being like, well, that sounds great. The problem is I am completely addicted to prescription painkillers. And honestly, I cannot think my way out of a cereal box and anything I turn out will be as if you somehow managed to get the world's most tepid imitation of me. And Joe Casada is like, I, I... as long as you put your name on it, that's all I care about. You know, I'm really glad you're saying this because guess what I reread this week? Oh, the Eternals. Yes. <laughs> I know my uh, ground. Let me, let me tell you, a, I, I'm going to argue it's aged better than I expected it to. Mm-hmm. B, it's also just a shockingly shitty comic. Yeah. Like really astonishingly shitty. You know, Everything you you jokingly said about game in there is not entirely off base, given how utterly lethargic and uninventive, and honestly unhappy a comic it is. It really is, isn't it? It's a weird self-loathing comic. Yeah. This comic makes you feel bad for reading it because you feel that you're kind of putting Neil Gaiman through it. Yeah, yeah, you really are. You're kind of sticking it to him. Like, you, do you ever, I don't know, Graham, this, maybe this has not, never happened to you. I hope not. But have you ever had, like, the, the passive aggressive date? Like, you know, where it's like, you ask someone out and you only figure out, like, maybe five to ten years later that they didn't like you and they didn't want to go out with you. But for whatever reason, maybe they were fearful of your hulking, imposing presence or something. They decided that they had no latitude to say no. And so they just went out with you. And everything that they did was so suffused with misery and that air of um you, you know what is it the it's the it's the neil gaiman and the, the eternals air that air of like oh, if i must you know what i mean like there's just uh i've never had a date like that it's oh, thank god nice that you think i've had so many dates that i could have had a date like that um, <laughs> but also i totally understand the dynamic of what you're saying from reading eternals oh okay which is yeah. like immediately mm-hmm. i comic the makes you feel that no one present no one involved in making it actually wanted to do it it feels like contractual obligation yeah, the comic the comic and and almost worse is the fact that every decision it makes regarding the eternals makes them less exciting a concept yeah yeah what i remember from the eternals the comic by neil gaiman is it's almost as if neil gaiman had written a movie script on spec about the Eternals that was like kind of a watered down, boring way to present the Eternals before sort of the superhero movie genre was underway. And Joe Casada paid him to adapt that into a comic book. And at a certain point, Neil Gaiman realized like that just meant that he had to figure out how to re- 
it was like bas- issues. Yeah, it was basically he was he was having to retype his homework twice, and and it's that grudging. Like anyway, I, but don't let don't let my impressions and of course, as everyone knows, like n- nobody's faster out of the gate to like dance, you know, to break open the Neil Gaiman pinata in the host, hopes that tasty Scientology flavored candy will spring out like me. So uh, please continue. No, I'm, I, I I highly recommend everyone does read it again. <laughs> really? Um, do you? In a really bizarre way, I kind of do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really strange how boring a comic it is. Yeah. It's really strange how it, when offered the chance to go big, it continually chooses to go smaller. Yes. Yep. Uh, it, how much it wastes John Romita Jr. Yeah. Uh, how much John Romita Jr. himself seems very bored doing it. Yeah. Like, really, it just, it's not putting his best foot forward in that comic mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it like, the, the idea that this is a movie script feels correct because there is so much of the stripping away of everything that makes it a comic book concept. Mm-hmm. You know, like, The Eternals is, you know, the, these are... are spectacular exciting you know god-like characters with with garish outfits who are here in a society um, like living amongst each other that that you know they're they're it, there's also the celestials who are these massive you know space gods mm-hmm. and there's the deviants who are monsters and gaming is just like but what if they were all hidden amongst humanity mm-hmm. and really know how to use their powers and hmm, then, like, the mob are going to beat them up, but the mob is going to be mostly the mob, but one of them's a deviant. But he's right. not really going to know he's a deviant. Yeah. So what if they just, like, get beaten up with punches? <laughs> and you're just like, well, how are we halfway through the series and fucking nothing has happened? Completely. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's genuinely shocking that you're like, why is the point of view character mercury but he thinks his name is mark curry and he's a medic yes and he's sad all the time yeah yeah like i don't care about the fact that he owes someone money <laughs> you know like it's it, but that's i mean genuinely it takes halfway to, through the series before you get anything different right which is insane it's insane because because out of all the kirby ideas the fact that kirby's whole thing is like the Eternals and the Deviants are basically all the mythological beings that mankind thought were demigods, were demigods, and in fact, it's these alien races. Like that's fucking Neil Gaiman's bread and butter. You know what I mean? Like he should have had like the time of his life sitting down and being like, "And this guy, you know, this Deviant's called October." who we also think of as blah, blah. And because he's got a detachable head, he's also the headless horseman. But other people also happen to know him as, you know, the Norwegian joy god, because I'm Neil Gaiman and I have like 97. I have have stories to tell. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, the great part was your voice went buzzy and ghosty in such a perfect Neil Gaiman Lord of the Flies you know, is, but also, you know, divinity. Like you're speaking to us from on high as Neil Gaiman, Graham. Well done. So Graham McMillan, as excited as I am to shit talk Neil Gaiman, and you know, I'm always excited about that. I feel we, I, I, 
Um, so are you doing like an Eternals read through much as you did with New Gods? Is that no, no, no? literally, uh, I was on Marvel Unlimited and I was looking for something to read mm-hmm. and like the, the Eternals movie coming out. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like, oh, I, I like I should read this. It's also because on Marvel Unlimited, it's one of the recommended titles. Interesting. Huh. Presumably because the movie's coming out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, the movie's coming out. The movie's coming out in like two years. Yeah, but, you know, start building the excitement for it now. Uh, you may have seen, I think, Rob Bricken. I, I don't know if he wrote this over at io9 or not, but he kind of wrote a, a story about basically how the Eternals is a really confusing, like, why the hell would you pick these characters to to make your movie about, which seemed very odd to me uh, in a way. And I have had that response. Lots of people have been like, why would you do it about this? Which like, I only get insofar as like inhumans was a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you can't do inhumans then why would you do eternals? Right. Which kind of makes sense. And also eternals works better as a closed system. Well, right, right. Uh, and I think that depending on what you do, I think that the Eternals can work pretty well for a first movie as a closed system uh, and also may provide reasons to um, – if you, if you start having a, a, a mythology that has a backstory – that can go further on back because essentially the Marvel universe, the Marvel cinematic universe by the end of phase two is, you know, a lot of like nothing. There's not a lot of, um, it doesn't, it's not especially deep. It only goes back as far as, you know, world war two and from a very, you know, Northern European basis of that. And especially with, you know, uh, the role of Tony Stark, shall we say, greatly diminished in the future. There's a certain um, magical genius element that is that is uh, gone. But the Eternals, what I think ha- might happen is they they can be the the bringers of the third or fourth wave of MacGuffins, where you know it's like, oh yeah, Angelina Jolie's. Um, you know, set of decorative brass knuckles ends up, you know, breaking apart and becoming the Mandarin's rings or, uh, you know, other things. I mean, but even in my, to me, just separate and apart from that, I'm kind of like, I feel that the Eternals, depending on how and when you do it, you can really play with, um, you know, for me, Kirby had you know his whole like nobody really took to eric von dyneken's chariots of the gods quite like jack kirby did you know like that guy was like yes ancient astronauts so glad you asked and really dug into that deep and i feel that there's a little bit of the idea of ancient civilizations shaping ours again we mentioned the x-files earlier i feel is such a um it's 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 kind of a strong slash stronger hook 
um, as in how does it tie into the real world? Part of the problem with the Inhumans may be that they are, it's precisely because they are so crazily hermetic, you know, and in part because I feel they're, the idea that Kirby had of like these, you know, these are the, the, you know, essentially the super, like what if all of the children of Moses had superpowers and they were forced to wander the earth in search of, you know, a new home for, you know, 40 days and 40 nights and basically got to get into slugfest. Like, I feel like profoundly, uh Zionist take that the X-Men seems just seems to keep circling around, particularly in this recent hox pox tox jocks thing. Um it, you know, is I, I feel like I feel like this is it's it's I could be wrong. I feel like Eternals is more of an in. It's more of a you know there there's two things I think make Eternals working better as a closed system. Mm-hmm. One is when you have mutants and humans, regular superheroes, mm-hmm. the concept of the Eternals is is lost to a gr- some degree, right? Because you know, if there is the the if if humanity is the middle ground between the Eternals and the Deviants, right? You know, then what does it mean when the Eternals are just more superhero guys, like humans, like mutants? Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that it, it muddies that concept. But also, in Kirby's original Eternals, there's the ticking clock aspect, mm-hmm. which you can't have in a shared universe. Right. Yes. No. Because mm-hmm. you ca- because no one ever believes that it's like the the clock's going to count down. Right. Whereas when the Eternals is a story, and you say, "Well, the Eternals are going to like the Celestials are going to judge," and you have twenty years. Mm-hmm. You believe that, mm-hmm. and it, it creates a, a stakes that that you, as the audience, believes. Right. That that you honestly you can't have when you're doing it, and you know, twenty years, but you know, maybe you'll get another Eternals movie, maybe you won't, but you are going to get Avengers Seven. Well, but at that point, if it's Avengers Seven, the the you know Deviant Celestial War or something like that, like. That might work. Like if you're if you're close I, I, of the I, phase yeah, I, is sure, but I, I guess what I mean is like no one expects the Marvel's movies to finish. Oh, I, Do you see, know what I mean like right. like right. It, it's we all accept now that it's an ongoing story. Well, yeah, but oh, so you're saying so it's not like anyone's going to be like yes, and so then the Earth's destroyed? Is that exactly? Saying? So like there's twenty years, and then they will decide. Then Celestials decide whether or not to destroy the world. Mm-hmm. But you never believe the world's going to be destroyed. I will take your word for it. I'm sort of like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that the, fortunately, the Marvel Cinematic Universe people are willing to think that. They may get diminishing returns in terms of. Well, they, they've also apparently changed the concept for the movie. So, Oh, have they? Have they said how? Yeah, in San Diego, the Eternals were talked about as a race of aliens who came to Earth to help human uh, humans evolve, mm. Mm. which is significantly different, you know. Right, right. Well, I guess I guess we'll just have to see. I guess we'll have to see. But I will say that I sure did like that Powers of Ten issue one that came out this week. 
That was pretty right. Cool. Yeah. I I, uh, I said this on Twitter, but I went in thinking, oh, I hope this doesn't let me down after House of House of X, and oh boy, it didn't. Yeah. No I came away like shit. He's way more ambitious than I was thinking. Yeah. 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 Like it's pretty. It's pretty crazy. Uh, it's funny. Somebody was was um, very charmingly taking us to task in the comments of the last episode. Where they're kind of like, yeah, it says something about how charming you guys are that despite oh, you're saw... completely wrong in all of your opinions. That was, that was maybe my favorite comment we've ever received. Yeah, yeah. That it's was just like, you're all fucking wrong. Yeah. Every every opinion you have. And then they say the thing that, like, I, when I read, I was like, no. Yeah, exactly. No, which is no comic writer before the 80s was any good. And yeah. I was like, no, sir. But there was all of it. I'm, I was like, no, Hickman's Avengers is, I mean, to me, ultimately a big-ass disappointment. But but I do like how much Powers of Ten and, in a way, House of X remind me of the best parts of Hickman's Avengers storyline without, so far anyway, without the, um, the plot hammering and... You know, we'll see. Maybe if an, a character that we recognize shows up, we can start believing that they're out of character. But, you know, but the way it stands now, Powers of Ten just threw so much stuff that, there that was so wonderful. Again, that's such a, a – uh, and I think you mentioned it in giving it the shout out in the – at least in the Hollywood Reporter newsletter of being um, like – uh, accessible to new readers, but so deeply loaded with um, it's it's not just winks, but he's like really built out some of the stuff that I admit I left Claremont's um, uh, X Men right around the time that, of course, Rachel Summers gets introduced as a Hound, you know, mm-hmm. and so the presence of the Hounds in Powers of Ten. And what's being done with them is really yeah. fabulous. I, you know? And Nimrod as well. Yes. And what's being done with Nimrod. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's there's all these things. Um, the House, House of Sonic is, you know, the podcast we've, we've mentioned here a bunch. Um, Paul O'Brien from House of Sonic used to do the X-Axis. He still does it as part of the House of Sonic site. But he's doing annotations. Ooh, for House, no House of X he? and Powers of Ten. Oh, my God. And his annotations are great. And Powers of Ten – and. Uh, yeah, it was House of X in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, he like like name dropped things that I just was not aware of mm-hmm. that made me go, "Oh shit!" Well, that like that that changes things, and that's really like that's really interesting. It becomes more interesting knowing this. Oh, my so God. I, I highly recommend yes that people go over to um, houseofstonish.com and, and and look at his annotations. Oh, I would love that. I mean, that's that's kind of. There were there were years there where I was not reading the X titles or just reading a few, and and his X axis was the best way it was to me that classic like more enjoyable than actually reading the books were you know by far so taking something that is so deep and having someone with such a keen eye as Paul to to do the annotations on it is 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 like i'm like that's the best news i heard all i've heard all week you know so um also batman last night on earth issue two what a strange fucking book that is and how i'm so glad i'm so glad you said that like i i'm really i'm not sure how i feel about it Mm -hmm. but it 
A, it felt like a chunk of comic. Yeah, well, there is that. Like, it really, really did. It mm-hmm. felt like a lot happened there. Yeah. But also, what the fuck is Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo doing there? Like, I'm, uh, I'm so curious, because reading it, I'm like, it feels like a standalone. It feels like it's not really a Batman story as much as, like, it's a DC story that just happens to star Batman. Mm-hmm. But also, it feels like it's Justice League book. Like, it feels really much like the epilogue to his Justice League book which, that he's doing. Now. Which is funny because I sort of half wondered if, if like, he wrote this first and then was kind of, like, it gave him lots of ideas that he then brought into Justice League. Because, yeah, you read some of the stuff, especially the stuff going on with Luther talking about I mean, there was a little bit, I, I had to reread issue one, but there, there's a whole thing about Luther's challenge to the idea of goodness and and where it's gotten anyone and basically invites people to overthrow it. I'm like, wow, that feels very much like what's going on in, you know, where Justice League is angling itself toward. But Yeah, it literally, it literally feels like that scene comes from like maybe two months ahead in Justice League. Yeah. Um, you know, it, perhaps unsurprisingly, I think what I liked about Batman Last Night on Earth is it is so um, it, it 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 honestly reminds me of of uh, Alan Moore's DC work um, in in a very strange that way that I feel that Moore used a lot of the DC universe stuff to, to talk about um, nostalgia and regret. And also the, the delight in sort of the trying to make you see the characters new. Like there's that whole amazing sequence where Batman and Joker are basically hang gliding over like Fort Amanda Connor or whatever. And it's this, never-ending battle between you know the, the, like unknown soldiers hunt and haunted tanks and i forget what the third one was and i was just like oh it's so some of the descriptions are so kind of the hey dc universe is the ideas themselves can be if you unmoor them from the context of what they are just playing with them as little bits and shards of a kaleidoscope to make to 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 where you're almost you know it's it's right on the the border of almost surrealist poetry i was like ah that's great and of course you know the both joker and the luther and luther in in last night on earth issue two are um pretty pretty wonderful kind of characters i suppose you know Mm -hmm. in joker's really fun yeah. Last night. yeah. He's he's like he's he's funny, but also he's fun. He's a he's a really interesting and I think necessary presence. Are you reading Snyder's Justice League? Uh no, I think I told you I dropped off on the first arc and then I think I jumped back and read like issue twenty or twenty one, the this is where everything changes kind of thing. And then I, I just had to drop back out. Um, uh, oh, no, the reason I'm asking is Joker's role in Last Night on Earth feels very much like Jaro's role in mm-hmm. Justice League. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, some some of the some of the Jaro stuff looks amazing, just what I've seen out of context. 
Um, I think part of what helps me for for Batman Last Night on Earth is the way in which uh, it. I don't know. It's it, in part because because of the big chunk of comic that it is. It it at least changes up the Snyder. I just felt like Justice League the the beats got so predictable for me, especially mm-hmm. coming off the heels of metal that I was like, I just can't read one more, you know, last minute victory snatched from the jaws of defeat, but defeat has snatched a bigger victory. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say like Justice League really is like defeat is snatched from the jaws of victory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it I just it it just it it kind it kind of wasn't doing it for me. Um, again, I think you and I have talked about the ways in which uh, uh, that's my new catchphrase. Unfortunately, uh, how much Snyder's Justice League seems to share certain characteristics with Hickman's Avengers, um, and I feel like the the continual emphasis on it's too late. We're all fucked. We can't do anything. No, wait, here's our last desperate plan. Surprise. It's even made us more fucked. I was just like, I just, I just can't do it. I, for whatever reason, just had, have, uh, it's almost like an allergic reaction to it, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. which is a shame because there's other things when Snyder is, is kind of being a lunatic. Like I, I kind of really like, how crazy he is well well that's what's so fun about last uh, night on earth yeah it's it's you know the, his batman run was with capullo had these moments where it did just go like wacky oh yeah, yeah you yeah, know yeah. it just went weird uh-huh and and, and very surprisingly so mm-hmm. you know and this seems like that but way more so yeah, you know, a lot of people when metal was coming up were like, "Ha ha!" It's all the craziness of of the, the Batman run, and it wasn't really. But last night on Earth really feels like it is. Yeah, last night on Earth really does feel like it is, and because because Snyder and Capullo can can really cut loose and kind of goad each other on. Uh, it just, yeah, it's it's it was an enjoyable little read. I don't suppose you read that Green Lantern annual, did you? Oh God, I was literally going to ask you that. Oh shit, yeah. Um, okay, it's not just me; it's terrible, right? Yo, it's so bad. It is. It's, it's really bad and makes you realize how much Liam Sharp brings the Green Lantern comic. Yeah, no kidding, right? Holy God, how That's did they? Terrible. Yeah, it really was. It was. It was tough. I mean, but it also does have that. um, It's weird. I really do wonder like that reading that issue. I was a right. Liam Sharp is fabulous. And B kind of that weird, like, oh, maybe Morrison really isn't going to pull off Green Lantern (laughs) after all. You know what I mean? Like it's I mean, it's so shockingly i mean it's it's the the even the story structure is just messy yeah to the point where like it there are points where it just lapses in incomprehensibility but also you know we've we've talked before about morrison is an old man now yeah right you know? and never before has that seemed as true yes uh, as it does in this comic yeah like it's it's just it's embarrassing mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that DC let him release that in the way that it, like in the manner that it's come out. 
Mm-hmm. The, the bit at the end where it's basically like, oh, the kids, they like the underdogs. But let us adults sort it out. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Shit and crikey. Or, or Airwave being like, oh, I didn't say I was a girl I liked. Yeah. It's just, fuck. Yeah. It's so bad. It's really really a horrible comic yeah it was it's funny it kind of reminded me of uh that year where morrison and miller co-wrote the flash together and, and we all we all blamed miller for it <laughs> we did we did and reading this i was kind of like huh i never right? thought maybe we shouldn't yeah maybe we should seriously i was maybe a lot of that was morrison after all if a- anyone was wondering how bad green lantern annual was literally i thought maybe i've been too hard on mark miller like i shit you not and that really is a sign that something went shit wrong um, yeah, when you read a comic and you're like, was this ghostwritten by Mark Miller from 1992? Yeah, seriously. Then, mm-hmm. then that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really bad. Mm-hmm. It's it's really impressively bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the best thing you can say about it is maybe Grant had to write it with absolutely no notice and he had a weekend to do it. Yeah, maybe. You know? Right. That, right. I think that's the very best thing you can say about it because it is not a good comic. Have you been reading the Green Lantern in general? I have been. I keep feeling like I'm an issue or two behind, but I don't even know if that's true. But yes, I have been reading it and it seems to alternate between issue that I love, issue I'm indifferent to, and issue that I actively fucking have no idea what the fuck they're doing. And then it just seems to like, it's been like they're on issue. I think issue 10 comes out maybe this week or right. I uh, sure. I mean, it's Actually, I, I could probably check. I, I have the DC comps. I just haven't I looked at them. Yet. Uh, uh, do I have the DC comps? Let, maybe I don't. Wow. This is a moment. Uh, no, I do. Oh, I do have the DC comps. Yes. Okay. Let's see. <laughs> Uh, there, yeah, there is issue ten out this week. Yeah, okay. So there's there's been nine issues of Green Lantern, and it has it has just cycled through. Like I think that's like I said, one of each of those. Ever you know, and so there's been three. There's been three issues I've loved. Three issues I've been like, what the fuck were you even thinking? And three issues where I was like, eh, pretty art, you know, which is kind of to me a very low batting average for Morrison. I think you said that you were super behind, right? Didn't you like? I was super behind, and I caught up. I, but I mean, I was really super behind. I was yeah. maybe I maybe issue sort of dropped four? off after issue three or something. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I caught up, and I've got to be honest, I'm not sure I'm feeling it. Yeah, you're like, not the it, only person. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's um, it it's, it feels it really does feel that uh, Sharp's doing the heavy lifting. By far. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it also feels like Grant doesn't really know what he's doing and that he's he's vamping a lot. Mm-hmm. You know? I, and also it feels weirdly frantic. Yes. Right. It, it feels like there's a lot of shouting for no reason. Mm-hmm. Like in, in lieu of, of any emotional resonance, someone will shout something. I, you know, I honestly, I also have those moments of – 
that's not wrong. Like, you know what I mean? Green Lantern was always a very shouty comic. Well, that's actually, that is not true. That is not my, yours and my favorite era. Well, I don't know. Maybe you have an even more favorite era. But during the Englehart Staten run, you know, Englehart Staten brought, of course, a great kind of calmness and, of course, a real cartooniness to some of the alien Green Lanterns. But the thing that was great is Englehart inherits the title after Hal Jordan has lost the ring. And instead of doing the, oh, God, he's like, OK, I'm just going to show Hal Jordan trying to move on with his life, you know, which was great. It was like that little, you know, Englehart doing the zag when people are expecting the zig, I guess. As I recall, I think you've read this stuff more recently and I could be dramatically wrong. But, but, but yeah, so there's a weird, th I feel like, I, I feel like, uh, Morrison is trying to capture every era of Green Lantern at once, as well as kind of doing sort of every different idea of a science fiction comic at once, like from issue to issue, so that it's like, oh, here's your heavy metal issue. Here's your 2000 AD issue. Here's your piss up of a Neil Adams Green Lantern issue. You know, here's your Silver Age John Broom issue, but it's handled through the lens of, you know, a dirty, like an episode of The Shield, you know? And, yeah, yeah. And it's just... It's it's a little it it's a little too much and like you said there feels like a vamping there doesn't feel like there's a very integrated sense to it and there is a... yeah like Morrison has said like when this when the series started like there's a twelve issue plan yeah. and we're like issue like I've read up through issue eight mm -hmm. and so that's like uh, two thirds through yeah. yeah I I don't think there's a twelve issue plan. Well, like I think Travis plan may be, you know, the the vaguest of of plots, and then a lot of like, well, how how do we just fill in these issues? I mean, I guess. I mean, I mean, there was a thing in nine, and honestly, there have been times where I have bet against Morrison uh, a little bit to my detriment, like being like, oh, there's no there there, and then realizing like, oh, it's there, but it's in a very hyper compressed terms. But I think even being the most generous that I can with Morrison's the green lantern is cause I think, I feel like issue nine builds to the revelation of who's behind the dark stars a little bit. There's a weird, like, um, Oh, I don't know. I, you know, kind of a, like grant you're actually, uh, it feels as if, Morrison to even the odds for having the Wachowskis rip off so much of the invisibles for the matrix is like, ha I take my vengeance from the depth of hell. I'm, I'm totally ripping off speed racer for this year of green lantern. And it's just like, wait, you're what? Like, couldn't you, couldn't you make Hal Jordan like a, a you know, a lesbian in a noir, you know, go for that, that rip off or I don't know. It's very, it's very strange. There's also a weird, like you said, Morrison as old man, but there's a little bit of the, 
like Morrison being like, oh yeah, Green Lantern, you know, first and foremost, Hal Jordan's a cop and therefore I'm tackling this like a science fiction police procedural, which is, um, which is, which is a great pitch. You know, it's a pitch that's going to sell you in the room. But then when he sat down to start writing that, it almost felt like he was like, I I have I have no idea what that means. And and there's a little bit of I can't tell if if Morrison really can't connect with the idea of a character that is a cop or he somehow can but in a way that he can't really discuss, but like Hal Jordan is such barely a a character in like nine issues of his own comic in a way that is um I mean, it's kind of a change of pace. I'm, I don't, you read the post John's Green Lantern and uh, I didn't. So, and you've expressed some appreciation for yeah, what I, people I, like Robert Venditti like were doing. Yeah, yeah, you like it. And I have a sneaking suspicion they probably tried to make Hal Jordan, you know, like a character with like things that he cared about. And, and this one is such this weird rogue like oh hell jordan he's just uh he's a man out of time he's a guy from a different era it he seems, he's, he's a maverick he, he he yeah he's a maverick he seems like the ideal audience for quentin tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood because <laughs> he's trying to be one of the characters in once upon a time in hollywood and it just feels um there's a lot of posturing right is i guess that's kind of yeah. what it feels like a lot of posturing in that comic which is why I think some of the piss-up issues, the him arresting God or the follow-up with the alien junkies issue was actually pretty – those were both fun, but those were also kind of a very um, uh, camp take on, you know, O'Neill and Adams uh, issues of Green Lantern. You know, and so I, I'm not entirely sure what else Morrison has. You, you know what I mean? Like you get posturing. No, exactly, mockery, exactly. But, like yeah. you're, you're for me. Like I'm in issue eight, and it feels like Morrison's been cycling through ideas of other people's comics of Green Lantern. Yeah, as opposed to bringing something to the table himself, or even having a coherent comic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot to love about the Green Lantern as a book, but again. That's Liam Sharp. Yeah, for sure. You know I mean, like, that's the book just looking amazing month after month. Yeah, yep. But, yeah. but story-wise, it's like, uh, you know, wasn't that page great? Yeah, right. No, a lot of that. A lot of like, ooh, wasn't that page great? And then when you kick that out, and that's the thing that scares me is the idea that the Green Lantern annual – is isn't really that much worse than the regular book it's but because the art it can't hold a candle to sharp it just feels like a fucking atrocity you know yeah yeah no exactly that's the thing like it really is it's the person you close mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we are like oh okay you take liam sharp away and this is what you're left with yeah. and it but but it doesn't even feel like there's a disconnect do you know what i mean like it just feels like oh this is what you're left with yeah, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the thing that's kind of weird is 
there was enough stuff in the Green Lantern annual where I'm like, well, this is clearly of a piece with the rest of Morrison's stuff in a way. But some of what he was going there, I mean, there's the whole scene where the Jordan family manages to cast off the alien invasion because Jordan, like, essentially, like, makes them channel their own inner dysfunction. And I was like, oof. You know, yeah, like, like, but also the dysfunction is like the dysfunction is weird. It is. Well, as, you know, it's like, hey, remember, you don't really want to fuck your husband. You want to fuck me? Yes. Yeah. No, completely. And, and you're like, yeah. what is this? Yeah. Like, what the fuck am I reading? Well, part of me was I was like, did they mention that in the in the Jeff Johns run? Is that somehow like a thing that's in there? But no, no. I mean, it, to be fair, that's that's like old school Green Lantern. Uh-huh. Like it really is. The the, the whole uh the Hal's like Hal's brother's wife thinks that he is actually Green Lantern is like is is old school. Oh, okay. Like Silver Age. Yeah, that sounds, um, that and, sounds and, like, like I, just I'm not it. sure if I'm not sure if Jeff Johns mentions it, but definitely Robert Venditti uh brings it up. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so the fact that that was being put out there, I just had that moment of like no, this is going in the wrong direction. You know, <laughs> kind of, kind of, ha, huh? like Grant Morrison's version of a dysfunctional family is so much more disturbing than I ever could have imagined. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that was so good. I'm glad you read that because that was a terrible comic. It's uh, funny, I because I read, uh, when I got like all the previews and everything, I read powers of 10 and then i read the green lantern annual and i was like oh green lantern so this would be great right <laughs> this grant but it's an annual i love annuals they're standalones <laughs> and then i was like oh no this is this is terrible yeah this is this is really terrible yeah 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 holy shit yes especially because uh powers of 10 feels like a non-annual annual you know what i mean like it feels like you know it ties into House of X, but on its it also does feel a little bit to me like some of those X Men annuals where it's just like wow, what the you know where they just poke a hole in the weird can and let the syrup run out all over the page. You know, well, what I what I really love about Paris of Ten is for me it brings back the idea of like fun speculation again. Mm-hmm. Like people have been on social media being like, oh my God, what does this scene mean? What does yes. this scene mean? Yeah. Um, and like I finished the book and I was like, oh shit, I think I know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And like that feeling, yeah. that feeling of of excitement yeah. Yeah. Is, is honestly rare in superhero comics these days. And there there is something thrilling about it. Mm-hmm. So when you get it back, you're like, this this is great. This this is this is what uh superhero comics can be this is what i want from superhero comics which you know i'm saying this about a book that honestly i don't think is a superhero comic well i mean even more to a case it's a superhero comic where i mean with powers of 10 it's such a strange because the uh, the way it's set up is it's all legacy stuff you know what i mean like it's not a you you've got a couple of characters set up in that first issue. I don't even know if we're I assume we'll see them in the second issue, but if we don't, I would not necessarily be surprised. You know? There's it's a very 
part of part of what House House of X and Powers of Ten do that is it part of what's so exciting about it is the everything that Hickman's riffing on is so established that he can more or less he can sort of remove the characters from it. Uh, and you still have so much to try and figure out and speculate mm-hmm. on and be excited mm-hmm. by. And I hope that he, that it works where he brings the characters back in and then you get the emotional investment and then it really like goes the distance for me. I don't, I don't know. And maybe that's an un, unfair thing. That's always the part where I, it seems like I run into the most opposition, I suppose, with, with Hickman fans. Uh, but I, you know, but it is, it is, it's exciting and it feels new, but it also is a little bit about, it's the, it's sort of how the 21st century subplot, I guess, works or might work or something. You know what I mean? Cause it's, uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just all grounded. Like you said, there's so much speculation and it's fun in a way that really does remind me of like, oh, who's that mysterious character lighting a cigarette that has a weird shadow, you know, um, back in X-Men 125 or wherever the hell Jason Wingard first appeared. Yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know, I've said this on Twitter. Like everyone – can we talk about specifics of Powers of Ten? Like Um, I feel everyone has probably read it, right? I no, mean, I'm serious because it's, it's it's an event book and it's an event book in a way that I feel the superhero comics haven't had in the longest time. Sure. Like when was the last when was the last book that it felt like you had to read it day of release? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that is let's put it that way. I definitely felt that way with House of X and Powers of Ten, but um, I also indulged myself and did so in a way that I don't know if I did. I don't know. I don't. I, anyway, it, I I think your rhetorical question is gumming the works up with me. I by me trying to answer it. But yes, please, please proceed. Yeah. It. But part of me is like, but Graham, it's been five days. Like it hasn't been out especially long. Like it won't even be a week by the time we. Yeah. Okay. I will. So I, I just. Yeah. But like, there's there's a particular. I feel that the the, this is spoiling but non spoiling. I feel the issue is a loop. In a way that is only going to become obvious later. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I feel that, I feel that the last, well, not the last scene because the last scene literally feeds into House of X, the opening scene. Mm-hmm. But I feel that the there's something late in the issue which directly informs the start of the issue. I could be wrong, hmm. but I got a really, really, really strong feeling about it. Okay. Well, okay. So I, I'm, I'm down. Let's just, we'll just mention this as spoilery <laughs> in the show notes and people can skip over this part, but I'm like, you have me intrigued, sir. So go for it. Uh, in the Ascension era, in a, a thousand years in the future, uh-huh. um, Nimrod has created a collective consciousness of mutant kind. Mm-hmm. That's in Moira's brain when Charles Xavier reads her mind at the start of the book. Uh, interesting. And I think that Moira isn't Moira. I think Moira is one of Sinister's clones. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. Well, you've heard the the whole Moira is Charles theory 
that's yeah, no, that there's a Myers there's a Myers theory, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Which honestly I think he's uh he could be right. It holds water. But his his evidence for the theory was the faces look similar and uh RM uh, RB Silva isn't that sort of artist. And honestly, I disagree strongly. I think RB Silva is that sort of artist. Mm-hmm. I think he draws faces really similarly anyway. Mm-hmm. Um and it, like if that's the evidence that their faces look similar, I think that's that's it. I think there's I think there's hopefully more to it than that. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, we we will we will indeed see. Uh yeah. Um well the, it uh, those those that I I like that theory. I definitely did have the theory at least initially that the first scene of of House of X 1 is supposed to be the last scene in a way, but now I'm sort of double doubting myself and thinking that you know, I think the more standard idea which is that all of the x-men that we see in house of x are in fact um these krakoa generated clones yeah so. yeah exactly how much of house of x is actually taking place now as opposed to it's krakoa in the far future and they're time portals as well as space portals mm, nice yeah right yeah there's there's that's that's a that's a good one so yeah it's like you said incredibly fun to speculate uh in a way that that is genuinely exciting and genuinely fun uh and it yeah we'll see we'll see where it goes i should mention that no i actually i should not mention i was gonna i was gonna talk about um skull face bookseller honda san which i thought that you would get a kick out of knowing about i honestly was like wait is that a name that you've just made up yeah doesn't it sound like it uh no i I was like is this is this a ghostwriter joke (laughs) It kind of looks like a ghostwriter uh, joke, but um, Skullface bookseller Honda-san is published by Yen Press. As I recall, it was a fan favorite when I was in Tokyo. Like I saw it in uh, on various book set shelves. And of course, it makes sense because Skullface bookseller Honda-san is about – a a bookseller someone who works in the manga section of a japanese bookstore and i'm only four chapters in but or three chapters in every chapter is her she looks like a a you know a, a, a skeleton in in a you know bookseller's little outfit with apron and everything um having to deal with endless hordes of foreign tourists who are there to buy specialty manga and her embarrassment with dealing with like the the second chapter is all her dealing with female european fans of boys love manga and them holding up like you know ridiculously obscenely titled and described books being like where can i find more of these and so it's it's a really funny series, but of course now that it's translated into English, it's uh, it'll be curious to see how much of it remains just sort of a simple gag strip. But the mm-hmm. the the weirdly um, Hall of Mirrors of 
reading an American translation of a Japanese manga that's about a bookseller working in a manga store complaining about Americans misunderstanding manga. And not so much complaining, but literally as in like Riley commenting. Yeah. Like there's such a, there's a cultural collision like that so far keeps happening that essentially is summed up with the idea that Japanese people who read Japanese manga and put this stuff out, like the stuff is real. It can be incredibly ridiculous and over the top, but the Japanese them are, are still the Japanese. And so there's sort of a level of mild, um, there's discretion and mild embarrassment and the, the high comedy of dealing with, you know, American tourists who clearly lack both um, trying to get stuff that is so ridiculously over the top that they that the booksellers are used to someone being doubly discreet about it is kind of, it's, it's a very, it's a very fun book. Um, and the fact that it does look like, yeah, ghostwriter's cousin who works in a bookstore is, is just icing on the cake. Um, it's, it's a it's so far it's a really fun little manga and I I wanted to mention it because I think when you and I talked I was kind of like ah yeah comics I've been kind of uh, and I think I just it was nice to actually I say that despite having really liked Last Night on Earth uh, and Powers of Ten like I was kind of like yeah the problem isn't comics I'm just I'm just a little burnout and need to catch my breath so. Well, what's really funny is you and I, yesterday, I think, Mm -hmm. were emailing. We're both like, I feel like I've not read anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And yet I feel that, A, we have because, weirdly, we've both read the same things, which hasn't happened in the longest time. Yes. Um, But also I feel like we're talking about it more enthusiastically. Mm. Well, that's true. I mean, some of it is like it's – some of that stuff is great. I mean, I should also mention that I read some, like I read Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, which I don't know if I've really talked about on here, but one of my ongoing joys of DC universe is more weeks than not. They post a new episode, a new issue of Lois Lane from like, you know, the late fifties or the silver age of, of Lois Lane with gorgeous Kurt Schaffenberger art, you know, and this one, I miss, I actually skipped over issue eight because I was going through hell at work. But issue nine, uh, I came out and I was actually able to read it at work. And it's the fucking Pat Boone issue, which is amazing. Like, because <laughs> it's it's like Lois Lane and Pat Boone, like, and you know, it's just you know, it's classic Superman. You know, they are out to perform a song like I sing a song of Superman and, and Superman has to prevent them from singing it at every opportunity. So he sabotages them. You know, it's that classic. That's everything we want. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is astounding because the, it's a, you know, it's maybe a eight page story. The first four pages of it, I shit you not Pat Boone's name is said twice in every panel. Like I was like, this is unbelievable. There was one panel where Pat Boone's name gets said three said twice 
And then, of course, is someone's holding up an album that is the album, you know, Pat Boone's greatest hits. So it's like Pat Boone pops up there three times. And also, let's face it, I hate Pat Boone. So it's really it says so much about <laughs> it sticks in your just sticks in your jaw, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. No, it's but but it's it's amazing. I I, uh, I tweeted out a picture. There's a great issue uh, story in there where. Um, Clark Kent and Lois, like their plane gets trapped in no shit. It's like literally the savage land, like cavemen, dinosaurs, everything that Marvel, like Marvel (laughs) does to establish the savage land as like this, such a major feature that they then have to destroy it and then reestablish it. And, you know, and by contrast, the whole story exists just so that um, Lois, who is trapped with Clark, uh, when they run across a group of cavemen and they ask if she's married to Clark, he, she, of course, denies it so vehemently that uh, Blog, the, uh, the, the only single caveman in the group, um, basically picks her for his wife. And she, of course, keeps giving him impossible challenges like he gets she gets to give him three challenges so she keeps giving him three challenges impossible jobs that clark kent as superman like behind the scenes rigs so that blog is you know conquers it and gets one step closer to making lois lane mrs blog and is he actually called blog like his weblog yes exactly so the joke on my Twitter feed was like, here's an excellent internet joke discovered 10 to 15 years too late. Cause the first panel is, is, you know, the splash page where Clark is saying, well, Lois, it looks like instead of becoming Mrs. Superman, you're going to become Mrs. Blog. And I'm like, ah, uh, Lois Lane, Mrs. Blog. So yes, that's amazing. Blog being thrown around everywhere. There's just something I I adore those Lois Lanes in part because, um, well, they're always interesting. Let's put it that way. I love the Kurt Schaffenberger art. Oh my God, his work is beautiful. But there's also the um, it's I don't know. It's a little bit like reality TV. It's you know either there's some sort of whimsy or or Lois is treated with more respect than in some cases she has gotten been treated in mainstream comics or the flip side is, is that it is a seriously fucked up psychodrama where, cause like the first one is like Lois Lane rat where Lois Lane is like, no one wants anything to do with her because there's a whole, like uh, she has, um, there was a story that was sent to the front page where she reveals that Clark Kent Superman. And they're like, how dare you, you know, you, you printed this story. And she's like, no, I just thought he was, you know, this was in my draft section and someone must've put it in the inbox tray and it got printed up. And they were, you know, it was interesting because the whole gist of the story is her saying like, no, I always wanted to know who Superman was, but I never would run that as a story because it would wreck his life and career, which is a weird take on the Superman-Lois dynamic, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And then, of course, the only thing weirder is this whole thing in which they all shame her, excoriate her. She weeps and has no choice but literally to leave Metropolis. And Lucy Lane convinces her to fly to Los Angeles and try out for a movie with her. Um, and it's all just an excuse to get her on This Is Your Life. And so they're like, <laughs> we pulled a trick to get you out to Hollywood. And so how were we going to do that, like, to get you to Hollywood when you we knew you wouldn't leave Metropolis? Oh, I know. We'll just make your we'll life. We'll ruin your hell. life. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of psychodrama, I will just sit there and, and like, shudder. Like, it's, it's a great, it's a, it is a great comic. I have to say that was that sounds everything I want from comics. Right. Right. So yeah, it's, it's even if, even if I swear to God, my entire annual subscription goes by and the only thing I read is like one issue of Lois Lane, new issue of Lois Lane a week. I think I will consider it uh, a, a money well spent. Cause... Exactly. That's all we need. Yeah. <laughs> DC Universe. <laughs> you still watch Doom Patrol, have you? Uh, no, we watched the first episode, which was great, and we're like, "Oh, we got to go on and do that." But then Edie and I talked about it, and we decided that we were actually feeling too good about our lives, so we decided to watch <laughs> the Americans. I don't know. We're like, we're like, oh my god, I, I love, I love that so much. Five seasons into the Americans, and. We'll just be like, okay, time for another episode, and it ends, and we just look at each other like, why I I I'm so miserable, I can't even move off the couch. Like, so yeah, so at some point we'll get through the Americans, and then I feel like we'll come back to Doom Patrol. Uh, I saw that the boys was apparently renewed for a second season, so oh, I didn't see that. That's that'll uh, that's good, I guess. I think so because you, you like season one, and you were probably yeah, the prime motivator for it, Graham. Like they were probably like that. <laughs> they're like, well, it's not him. Yeah, but that's it. Mm-hmm. But let's let's make season two. Yep. Um, I'm. Uh, I'll be curious to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. I'm also very much waiting for you to watch it. Yes. Yeah. I. Uh, Although I, I will say this, I said last week that you know there was so, they basically changed so much from the comic. Yeah. And the further I get into my comic read, the more I'm like, oh, they're not. They're just pulling things like way forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, what I, someone I, in the comments fair, said is, yeah. Doing a lot, it, to my mind, better still. Right. Like, I, I think, like, yeah. yeah, I think Ennis is doing, uh, like, has has a lot of ideas that he executes poorly, or at least pure, poorly to my taste. Right. Like, I, I think he's executing them exactly the way he wants them to. Right. But there's <laughs> things in the, no, no, I, I, I'm not being snarky. Right. I, I think he's doing exactly what he wants with them. It's just that for my tastes... I find the way the television show does it infinitely more rewarding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the time in which it happens in the television show versus the comic. Mm-hmm. You know, the television show gets something in a third episode and I'm getting to it in like issue 40. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of slow burn get, stuff or, that he yeah, kicks in. Gets mm-hmm. issue 40, like I've sat through, you know, six issues where the entire joke is, aren't the X-Men a bit gay? You know, and you're like, oh, fuck, really? You know? It's so, you know it's actually weirder than that. I mean, no, I know. I'm just I'm I'm making it like I'm I'm simplifying. It. Now I'm being snarky. Yes, uh, <laughs> but no, it, no. But you know what I mean? Like there is an awful lot of like you know. Here's a comic that you like. You definitely know who these superheroes are. But what if they were like you know, 
kind of perverted and also kind of dumb. Right. And you're like, okay, I got it. And he's like, but here's some more superheroes. But what if they were perverted and also kind of dumb? Yeah. And you're like, got it, Garth. Necessarily, and here's some superheroes you recognize. What if they were perverted? I'm like, that's just like also kind of dumb. And he's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's like the second year of the boys, basically. Yeah, totally true, it's completely, very much so. Which is, uh, yeah, it's again, it there there is a whole regrettable level of like, ah, oh, what is the it's flash a, like to like, finger up his ass? You know, that's yeah, just like, but it's like weirdly, um enthusiastically puerile yeah oh very much so right yeah and thankfully the tv show just isn't yeah 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 yeah. you know uh although i interestingly enough i was reading something this week where there is a scene that amazon was like you're you're not fucking getting to to put that in the show Mm -hmm. which is homelander jerking off over over the city oh really god i don't remember that i don't even remember that scene from the comic but of course i don't think it's like oh okay but I, I, I think that um I think that it's like I it's like hilarious. Amazon were like, that's the one scene we're not gonna like putting the yeah, show. Yeah, that's that is pretty amazing. Wow. You can do anything else, but you're not fucking putting that in. Wow. That's kind of a shame. Because, uh, I mean, let's face it, it does um you know, like you that shorthand's like nobody's business, let me tell you. Uh, Graham McMillan, anything else? I feel, I feel like I managed to I, talk I feel, about the I Americans. honestly feel like we should kind of wrap it up now. Yeah, I think like, so. I, you know, it's like, let's quit while we're ahead. <laughs> honestly, the thing that's crazy is I feel like I'm cutting us dramatically short, and I think we're going to end up at two hours, so... Well, we're, we're, we're definitely at two hours. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 we're, we're doing... We should, we should just stop. We should stop now. Yeah. Uh, why not? We stop by me telling you that you can uh, check out our Instagram at Instagram.com forward slash WayWattPods. You can check out our Tumblr, WayWattPods.tumblr.com. You can check out our Twitter account at... Uh, Wait Podcast. I completely forgot what her Twitter account was. It's <laughs> at Wait Podcast. Jeff's Twitter account, I will not forget, it's at Lazy Bassett, at L A Z Y B A S C I D. I am at Graham M, at G R A E M E M. And we are, as ever, a Patreon supported podcast, which means that Jeff has some words he wants to have with you, and you, and you, and you, and you. That's right. The, which is um, which is generally we're super grateful for all of our listeners. We really are. Thank you. Um, it, there, it's, it's I I know that I've mentioned this. I don't think I mentioned it in last week's love fest. But you know, Graham McMillan, who is among the uh, hardest working men in the comic book industry slash reporting entertainment industry. Um, I don't know if I would ever get a chance to um, see him if I had if we had somehow utilized our uh, conversations into a comic book podcast format. Um, that's because some of that's my self-esteem issues, but nonetheless, by allowing me to talk to my friend, it's Graham all Jeff's self-esteem issues. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to you guys for keeping us excited and motivated. Also, uh, there are those people who not only listen to us, but throw us a little bit of their hard-earned dosh, uh, via Patreon, we are super grateful to them. They allow us to uh, keep excited and keep moving forward. As you know, the Baxter Building podcast uh, and now Drock uh, exist um, precisely and entirely because of their support and the miracle of stretch goals. And um, 
we should give a special shout out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, to whom we're especially grateful for continuing support of this podcast and this little nick of the celestial woods. And I should mention before Graham gets back to it, uh, uh, although I know that Graham was going to bring it up, I would have to say that thanks to you fine listeners, uh, we next week, if all goes according to plan, should have a very special episode uh, for you in celebration of our 10th anniversary, um, which technically was back in July. But, you know, scheduling happens. Look, thing, things happened. Also, was it July or was it June? Was it June or is July? I thought, oh, it you're was right. June. Right, it was June, and we couldn't get it for June either. And now, and then we had to, then we the... had to push it out from July because of San Diego messing everything up. Is that is that how it worked? Okay, well, yeah. in, in any event, it's uh, still we, on. The tenth anniversary is still on. Yeah. Are we going to say what it is, or are we not going to say what it is? Oh, you know, we should say what it is, shouldn't we? I guess we can do that now. Yeah, I think like, we should. Because I think, like, we've scheduled the actual conversation. Yeah. So I, I think that we can say what it is. I think Cause we Because we've talked around it for, like, two months. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, people, long-term listeners of the show know that it's always been Graham and I. Uh, very early on, we've had exactly one guest before which was brian hibbs and we could sort of pretend that he was more on as sort of our our host patron at that point all of which is to say we started talking about who we could try to interview uh as as a way uh, our 10th anniversary way of um, of celebrating this podcast and we batted some names around did we or did we just pretty much cut to the to this well, one we here's the thing we batted some names around and there was one name that was our it's not going to happen yeah that's true and then it happened yeah yeah so for those who are wondering next week if all goes according to plan we it will be graham and i in conversation with mr steve Englehart, which i can't even believe i'm saying that out loud graham oh my god i have no idea he's so weird I tell you, I don't, I am so, I don't know what you're going to do, but thank, thank God for, uh, Edie having some bizarre health issues. We actually have some Valium in the house. I might have to take it before we interview because otherwise I just may be too much of a wreck to actually get a question out. Like I will completely and utterly be like that, uh, Saturday night live sketch with, uh, What's his name? Why can't I ever think of these names? The poor guy who died, who's waiting. Chris Farley. Chris Farley. Yeah, Chris Farley as the sweating fanboy. Like, it's going to take all my power. Graham, we're going to fucking talk to Steve Englehart. That is so exciting. Uh, hopefully, it could be a huge car crash. Graham has uh, actual experience interviewing pros, although he tends to interview comic book pros and then type up the results. We've never heard how awkward it is in person. I have very awkward. It's very awkward. Let's just throw that out there. Yeah. And I think I've recounted my experiences talking to pros at cons, which involved, I would say the most successful experience was spending 45 minutes talking to Russ Heath about his apartment. Um, so who knows what we're going to get? I am Graham. Do you, have you worked up any questions? Do you know what you're going to ask him? Uh, I have not worked up any questions. I am in denial that it's going to happen. Yeah. Because it really freaks me out. Yeah. 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 I want to ask him about, uh, how long he drove a cab for in San Francisco. 
I want to ask him uh, if he still believes in astrology. Uh, I'm looking uh, for... I, I, I've got to be honest. I do... Like, I, you're going to have to stop me from asking far too much about New Guardians. That's not a joke. No. Like, I, I, mean... I, I am really curious about that series, and you're going to have to stop me. You know, to, to, to paraphrase, um, you know, we're not trapped in here with him, Graham. He's trapped in here with us. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm like, ask about New Guardians. What's it going to hurt him? I'm going to talk, I'm going to ask him if he's seen the Marvel Cinematic, uh, the MCU movies and if he did, which one's his favorite. And maybe I'll get Ghosh and ask him if he saw any money from Mantis. Uh, I, I look forward to asking him. I'm looking forward to asking him if, uh, if he's read Sean Howe's, uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold History book. Uh, I actually want to go back and consult that because, you know, there's that scene where Jerry Conway talks about one of the comic book creators on acid threatening to kill him. And I, I'm 90% sure it's Jim Starlin, but I'm going to ask if Steve Englehart knows. <laughs> so, oh my God, this could be amazing. Uh, why not? We're talking to fucking Steve Englehart next week, which is just weird. Um, I should say. We're not going to be talking to Steve Englehart for two hours. No. Uh, unless, honestly, like, that, I think that would surprise everyone involved in that phone call. Yeah. But that might mean it will be a shorter episode than normal, or we might just fanboy out after talking to Steve Englehart. Yeah, we might call back and be like, oh, my God, Graham, can you believe it? Yeah, I'm very much – I am I am utterly terrified in the best way. Uh, I guess is the way of, of, I should put it. So I hope you all can join us because, man, it's – I think even if it's going to be a train wreck, which will humiliate us, it should be great listening in that regard, right? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what else? In a week, you're going to hear us both lose our minds. Yeah. And we're doing it for you. Actually, we're really doing it for us. Let's be perfectly honest. I gotta admit, like there we're, is, we're, we're pretending that we're doing it for you, yeah. but really, we're doing we're yeah. doing it for us. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Although <laughs> I, I should say, if people have like, if, if you guys want to send us questions, I'm not saying we're going to ask all the questions you send because no, or maybe even but any. Guys... But if you do have a question and and it and it aligns with Graham and I's selfish uh, tastes and interests. Send it along because I think you guys, uh, as as the comments thread at waitwhatpodcast.com proves pretty much every week, you guys are awesome and have excellent ideas uh, that we would we would happily ride your coattails on. So yeah, send those send those questions waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com and we uh, to, to, we, we'll read them yeah. whether or not we'll read them to him right. is another question but we will definitely read them and if any of them are like really smart we might steal them and pretend that we came up with them Yes, I just I just want to put that out there right now you know that thing where people like sign up for social media and it's basically like we own all your ideas this is our version of that if you guys say something that makes us look good we really want to look good in front of Steve Englehart I so we will just steal it I'm very I'm very impressed Graham McMillan doing perhaps the best imitation of the Marvel comics I think I've ever heard uh... <laughs> God on that bombshell <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll be back in a week with Steve Englehart and who knows what else it'll be probably absolutely bizarre but until then bye can't argue with that